Welcome to The Dive Podcast, presented by Willamette Week, where every Saturday we discuss the biggest news stories of the week with Portland's noisiest newsmakers, savviest culturistas, and some of the best journalists in the game. I'm your host, Brianna Wheeler, and I want to hear from you. So send your questions and comments to me, bwheeler at wweek.com. All right, y'all, enjoy the show. The Boy Scouts are an American institution. But within that institution existed some of the worst breaches of trust, wherein young boys were isolated in remote locations and left to be preyed on repeatedly by pedophile scoutmasters who were cycled through the BSA's administration like deranged priests through the Catholic Church. For years, the BSA, the Boy Scouts of America, successfully kept the details of these abuses from the public until a Multnomah case set a precedent for compensating survivors that opened the floodgates for more survivors to come forward, not only bankrupting the Boy Scouts of America, but changing the entire narrative of the institution, which was once synonymous with virtue. Today, we'll talk to former Boy Scout and W.W. Luminary himself, Nigel Jaquist, whose new film, Leave No Trace, traces the rise and the fall of the Boy Scouts of America. It's Saturday, June 18th, and this is episode 76 of The Dive. There's lore attached to the Boy Scouts that transcends participation in the program. It's just woven into the American tapestry, even though I think for a few generations now, it's been realized as something less wholesome and more vulnerable to seriously sinister infiltration. I myself remember schoolyard whispers about predatory scoutmasters as a child, and I also recall the consistent lower third news clippings about BSA sex abuse settlements that increased as I got older. Pedophile scoutmasters have been an open secret for decades, and Nigel's film, Leave No Trace, does an expert job of exposing their failures while giving space to the survivors. Nigel and I will discuss Leave No Trace, which is now available to stream on Hulu, in just a moment. But first, here are a few things that I learned from this week's edition of Willamette Week. Mayor Wheeler announced that the city would begin sweeping homeless camps citywide, using the same aggressive approach used to recently clear Old Town. But only 64 folks whose Old Town camps were cleared were referred to shelters, So what the heck is happening to the rest of the people? Look, I'm sure that Mayor Wheeler is doing his best, but I just really need you guys to know that me and the mayor are not related. Rachel Monahan reports, the counties with the highest gun deaths per capita are Josephine, Klamath, Curry, Baker, and Brook counties. And the majority of gun deaths in Oregon have been suicides. In fact, death by suicide is the most common gun death which kind of makes me reconsider how I think of gun violence altogether. On the other hand, Veronica Bianco and Sophie Peel report that kids in PPS are wielding gel guns like they're super soakers, apparently unaware of the implication, which is just too much dystopia for me on this day. How about dumplings? How about dumplings? Do y'all like dumplings? I like dumplings. I feel like we need some dumplings. Do you need some dumplings? I feel like you need some dumpling dopamine. Well, the popular Seattle dim sum spot 
Dozone just opened a new location on South Waterfront, where they are serving all manner of affordably delicious dopamine-encouraging dough balls. Now let's discuss Leave No Trace with a post-premiere, pre-Oscar, probably, Nigel Jaquis. Hello, Nigel. Thank you for joining me today, and congratulations on your film, Leave No Trace. Um, tell me how you discovered this story. Well, back in the depths of the pandemic, the first year of the pandemic, July 2020, I got an email from my journalism school classmate and longtime friend, Irene Taylor, who'd made many documentaries in the past. She and I uh, would often meet for coffee pre-pandemic to talk about our work and our kids. And uh, she said, hey, I met somebody who's really interesting. She just takes phone calls all day long from sex abuse victims who were Boy Scouts. And I, she said, would you be interested in talking to me about the story and maybe working on it with me? And I said, you know, I'm just sitting in my basement writing meaningless stories about the pandemic. I would love to talk to you about that. So I did a little reading. You know, I, I saw that the Boy Scouts had declared bankruptcy a few months earlier. And, um, you know, I'd been a Boy Scout, and I had a sense of the – I followed the Catholic Church scandals pretty closely and um, I had a sense that this was a huge story and she obviously had a sense that it was a huge story and had a real big national story, of course, but it had a very big Portland connection. So that's kind of how we got onto it. Yeah. What, what, is the, um, what is the connection between the Boy Scouts of America and Portland? Well, uh, in 2010, there was a case here, a sexual abuse case where a scout... Uh, former scout sued the Boy Scouts, and they got sued regularly starting in the 1980s. What was very unusual about this case, firstly, was that it went to trial. Normally, if there was a substantial case against the Boy Scouts, their insurers would settle it before it went to trial. Part of the reason, I believe, is because the Boy Scouts, as early as 1922, started keeping files on uh, leaders who were alleged to be uh, sexual abusers or pedophiles, and I think the Scouts had a very strong and, and understandable interest in keeping those files secret. In this case, because the case went to trial, the, the lawyers involved for the uh, plaintiff, whose name was Carrie Lewis, said, hey, we hear there are these files. They've never really been brought into evidence and never been made public. We would ask the judge to allow them to be brought into evidence and to be made public. And the judge, John Whitmire, went along with that. He, he, um, he ordered the Scouts to... Uh, produced the files. They produced about 20 years worth, a selection of the files, not, all, by, not by any means all of them. And then uh, when they were brought into evidence, uh, a number of news organizations petitioned for them to be made public, and he, the judge, agreed, ordered them to be made public. Boy Scouts objected strenuously, appealed that order to the Supreme Court, Oregon Supreme Court, and in 2012, the Oregon Supreme Court ordered that the files be made public. Prior to that, the, the case had been resolved in favor of the plaintiff, and he had been awarded nearly $20 million. So the significance of the case was really twofold. First, it showed the value of a single case of sexual abuse against uh, the scouts, nearly $20 million. And, and uh, just as importantly, it uh, because these 2,000 files were made public, those covered 20 years of, of uh, abusers, any lawyer around the country who was representing somebody who had a case against the Boy Scouts could say, well, first of all, 
A court in Oregon has said these cases are worth a lot of money. And secondly, here is institutional, here's evidence of an institutional cover-up of knowledge and negligence that Boy Scouts knew this was happening and they didn't do much to stop it. So that case is cited regularly around the country by legal experts as the case that brought the Boy Scouts really to bankruptcy. It took them 10 years to get to bankruptcy court, but that was that was the end for them. Mm-hmm. They just didn't how did they get away with this for so long? I, that's a great question, and I've thought a lot about it. I, I really think, and I can't prove this, but I, I think one of the issues that really perpetuated this was that uh, there have been, you know, 120 million Boy Scouts or some crazy number, uh, and many of uh, many of the people who are really who really achieve the highest level, which is Eagle Scout, no, those. Uh, Eagle Scouts are sort of like a fraternity, and they are in positions of leadership in in academia, the arts, business, athletics, you name it. Um, And if you look at the board for the Cascade Pacific Council, which is the one that covers the Portland metro region, um, you know, it's high flyers. It's high high achievers in, in every community, and nationally, the national board is made of made up of incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy men uh, from all over the country. And, and I think so the, the, the people who lead the organization nationally and regionally and locally had great experiences and great success. And, and I think many of them attribute their success in part or fully to the Boy Scouts. So they had a great interest in preserving this organization that they love and that helped them become successful. And I really think that their institutional attitude was, well, that wasn't my experience. Mm, you know, yeah. that, 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 that abuse or that bad experience you had, that wasn't my experience. So I think there was a level of denial, complacency. I also think that one of the things that's not really in the film because we just had too much to say and not enough time to say it is that the Boy Scouts are a very insular organization that promotes from within they, until recently, rarely ever brought uh, any kind of senior leadership in from outside. And I think that, you know, what, what succeeded for the Boy Scouts in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, they kept doing, and the world changed. And uh, so I think that they just had a level of comfort and a level of denial that sort of allowed them to continue doing the same thing, even as they had evidence of a major, major problem mm-hmm. in their ranks. Were you planning the documentary on the road? Well, so we were, you know, we're, we're, Irene Taylor, the film's uh, director, lives in Portland. And so we were, you know, the, it, it's hard to remember now, but in, in 2020, people weren't seeing each other very much. We weren't traveling very much, but we were talking a lot. And so we, we worked together to try and sketch out a narrative arc for the story based on what little we knew at that point. And we were continually educating ourselves, you know, doing a lot of reading, doing a lot of interviewing, learning more about the history of the organization, because really the question we're trying to ask is how did this organization that had so many resources and had benefited so many people over so many years, how did it go so far wrong? So we knew that 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 question would animate the arc. And so we were trying to get our, our arms around what, how the story, how we might tell the story. And then to some degree, trying to fill in, okay, if we need to talk to somebody about Rockwell, who would we, Norman Rockwell, who really kind of created the Boy Scout myth, who would we talk to? If we need to talk to a 
cross-section of survivors around the country, what kind of people would we want to talk to? What, what do we need to know about them, the, the scouts' financials? Who, could we find somebody who knows the organization from the inside? So to some degree, we sort of got a sense of what the arc might be and then tried to fill in uh, who we were going to interview and, and for what purpose. And so it's different from print reporting because if you go see somebody in Colorado or Ohio or Texas, you're going to spend a whole day, maybe two days, filming the whole day. And it's it's really remarkable how much, and this is my first documentary film, how much video you generate to, to, to make an hour, 45-minute uh, film. Mm-hmm. Is this the biggest difference between making a documentary and writing a Willamette Week cover story? I think that the biggest difference, that the challenge that I found really fascinating and very difficult is that when you're just working one-dimensionally with words and maybe you have pictures, you know, f- photos or illustrations in your story, but a print story is really one-dimensional in the sense that, you know, you have a quote and if the quote's not exactly right, you paraphrase it or if it's not a good quote, you rewrite it and you're, you know, you... You paraphrase it in your own words, or you get somebody else to say it, or you go back and say, you know, what you said doesn't quite uh, work. Could you could you elaborate? Could you say something more? Could you say what you said differently? Well, in film, you're you're in three dimensions. You know, you've you've got the sound, you've got the picture, and then you've got to fit it into the narrative arc, and um, that's really challenging. It's really hard because sometimes you'll think, well, this character said something was. In the transcripts, it looks really like the perfect quote to illustrate the point we're trying to make here. And then you listen to it, and the person mumbled or, or you know, they spoke but never stopped, like I'm doing, never stopped talking, so there's no cut point. Or or they were looking away, or they, you know, they were, they were obscured by a, a wire that shouldn't have been there. So it's much more challenging. And then, of course, you have to score it. So we had, you know, a, a wonderful... Portland musician Mark Orton, who's done scores for, I think, 40 films, you know, you, you have that dimensional part of it as well. So it's, I think it's a much more complicated way of telling a story than simply writing. What was, what was the hardest part about interviewing survivors of sexual abuse? There's a fine line between uh, don't want to re-traumatize a person. Yeah. On the other hand, on the other hand, to make the film have the impact that we want it to have, you have to know what happened, and you have to know how it impacted the person. And so, there's this sort of fine line between uh, pushing for uh, uh, as much information as graphically and as in as much detail as possible and also not re-traumatizing and trying to respect the privacy and the uh, balance and integrity of a person's life and so uh, you know it's really you have to remember this is, you know, this is somebody's lived reality 24-7 for decades. And so you want to help them tell it, but you don't want to hurt them by helping them. Hmm. There's um, a moment that I thought was so powerful towards the beginning of the film um, where the 
director's interviewing a child and his parents about the abuse that he suffered and by employing just silence, by just giving him the space to feel safe and talk about it, he, like, for the first time expresses some of the abuse that he suffered. And I thought that that was a beautiful illustration of, like, how journalism can help someone process those complicated emotions. Of all of the moments that occurred over the course of this film, what was the one that stuck out most to you? Well, it's hard. <laughs> there were so many. I, 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 I'm not a particularly expressive or emotional person, but I, I was certainly moved to tears a number of times in the course of interviewing people and, and in the course of watching the film. Um, even last night, when I, I've now seen the film uh, in its final version four times in the last week, and uh, I still find it very moving. I, I think that the moment in Indianapolis, actually Noblesville near Indianapolis, where we, Irene and I had dinner with John Stewart, who is a, uh, you know, lifetime, he was a scout, he was a scout executive, he's the father of two Eagle Scouts, he's deeply committed to scouting. And we had gone to speak to him and, and mostly about his experience working as a senior executive in the Scouts for 10 years, trying desperately to help the Scouts save themselves and recreate themselves after the Oregon case in 2010. And John came away with that from that experience with a pretty jaundiced, skeptical view of the Scouts as a manager, from a managerial point of view. So in the course of our having dinner to get to know each other before uh, we were to film the next day, John just casually said, yeah, I was a, I was a victim too. And we had no idea. And um, he's a very polished, uh, he, he's a marketing guy, and he's very, he's very polished and, and highly experienced at a high level, both in you know, private business and in scouting. And I, I was shocked. And um, then when we interviewed him on camera about his experience, I felt it deeply moving, in part because he does love scouting so much and it's been so influential in his life and so helpful to his family. Yet, you know, he suffered he suffered terrible abuse, which has he has really struggled to, to come to terms with. So I think in some ways that because that was so surprising when we had some very emotional interviews with other survivors, we knew going in that they had been victimized. With John, we didn't know. You have a relationship with the Boy Scouts of America. You were a Boy Scout. You expressed having kind of a positive relationship with your memories of being a Boy Scout. What's changed about that relationship now? Well, I had this, I had this very uh, solipsistic or sort of egocentric uh, revelation at one point when I was speaking to John Humphrey, who's uh, the character in the film, uh, who's almost exactly the same age as me. And um, uh, he was talking about how he had been a very athletic outdoorsy kid he was not the kind of kid that you would think would be taken advantage of and uh, you know he came from a middle class home and intact parents you know siblings every sort of every indicator of uh, privilege is perhaps the wrong word but he, he came from sort of the all-american background and, and yet he was terribly abused by his scout master 200 times or more and i had this thought i'm like that, that could have been me could have easily been me um and uh, I had a very good experience in the Boy Scouts. I learned a lot of, I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot of skills. I wasn't really interested that much in the merit badges or the achievement, um, except the merit badges that I thought were really fun, and many of them are. 
So I think it, it really gave me a good grounding uh, in the outdoors, which I, I love. It's the reason I moved to Oregon. Um, it's the reason I went to the college I went to. It, it probably is the reason I married the person that I married, my, my love of the outdoors. And um, so I think the, the scouts were really good for me. And um, I, I think what I realized again was that that's sort of, it's the luck of the draw. I mean, you, you know, I had no control over who my scoutmaster was. And um, we were often in situations where it would have been very easy for uh, our scoutmaster to take advantage of boys. And um, so I, I think I, there's, a, there's a person, an expert in the film who says, you know, the problem is the model. When you send uh, vulnerable children into the woods uh, with uh, an adult who has uh, malintentions, bad things are going to happen. And so it, it made me really think about uh, how lucky, you know, how lucky those of us are who were, were not abused that we weren't because we easily could have been. Yeah. On the other hand, your experience was good and it informed all of these good things about your life. I want to think that those experiences are still going to be available to the next generation. But after this, what what is the future of Boy Scouts? Is there a future for the Boy Scouts? Well, it, it's so interesting to talk to the survivors in the film because all of them obviously were Scouts and, and all of them speak positively about uh, many of the aspects that they were uh, you know the, the good side of the scouts they, they, some of the people who suffered the worst abuse have the most positive things to say about some of the scouting uh, experience I, I really question whether this organization uh, has the ability to remake itself because of the culture that it, the, the culture is so insular I, I don't know I think it's going to be difficult for the Boy Scouts to remake themselves for the 21st century yeah. they might I mean, because there is a big demand for, you know, positive ways for kids to be outside and for people to learn skills about leadership or about life. So there's a big demand for what the scouts offer. The question is, can they offer it in a way that's safe and, and compelling to kids? Thanks to my guest today, Nigel Jaquis. This new film, Leave No Trace, is available to stream on Hulu. And thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join me again next week. Until then, bye!